Thank you for tuning in to Propel Church. Whether you're watching on YouTube or listening to our podcast, we're so glad that you chose to join us today. We believe that God has great things in store for you and hope that you are encouraged and inspired by this message. Man, uh, on Easter Sunday, we get to celebrate the greatest news of all. But I don't know uh, what your church background looks like or your upbringing. I know some of you probably grew up in church, and so Easter was one of those times where you were in church whether you liked it or not, right? You, you, had, to be, you had to be dead to not be there, right? Because Jesus got out the grave, you can get out to bed. You know, some of y'all grew up in a house like that, but... Others of you, maybe you weren't around church or didn't grow up in that environment. And so what I want to do today before we dive into the text and open up God's word together, I don't want to assume that we know the story. I want to walk us through to get to the point where we're going to open the Bible in Luke chapter 23 today. And we're going to find Jesus who is about to be crucified. But if you're not familiar with the story, we believe here at Propel Church that the Bible is God's inspired word. It was given to us. We don't just need half of it. We don't just need the New Testament. We need the Old Testament as well. And as we look to unpack Luke, that's going to be the third chapter in the New Testament. But to understand the story, we actually have to go back to the very beginning of the Bible. And when we unpack Genesis chapter 1, we open the story to a creator who is doing just that. He's creating. He is breathing into existence what was once nothingness, and he's creating the heavens and the earth. He's creating the stars in the sky. He's creating water, fish, and birds. All of these things are happening, and he's saying at the end of that that it's good. But then he creates man, and he says that there's one thing that's not good, and it's for man to be alone, and so then God creates Eve to be a co-laborer with Adam. And as they're doing life, we then get to Genesis chapter 3. But to understand our original design, we see that God creates us to live in perfection with him. But perfection has a standard. And so in that standard, God actually gives Adam and Eve this thing called free will because there's no love without choice. And so in the midst of this process, God says, hey, you can rule over the entire world. All of it's yours to enjoy, but there's one thing that you shouldn't do. There's this tree in the garden of the knowledge of good and evil, and you should not eat from that specific tree. Well, come on, anybody ever told you not to do something? (laughs) We continue reading in the text, and when we get to Genesis chapter 3, we see that there's a serpent who enters into the picture and begins to have a conversation with Eve and is like, well, God really didn't, did God really say that you shouldn't eat from the tree? Maybe God's withholding something from you, trying to keep you from knowing right and wrong and becoming like him. And in that moment, Eve takes of the fruit and she eats of it. She then offers it to her husband, Adam, who eats of it as well. This is Genesis chapter 3. And immediately, Scripture says that their eyes were opened, that they realized they were naked. Guilt and shame came upon them. Sin enters into the world in that moment because they broke the standard of God. But in Genesis chapter 3, God delivers a promise. 
where he slaughters an animal to create clothing and cover their nakedness, what he's doing in that moment is he's ultimately pointing us to the fact that one day through bloodshed, all sins of mankind would be covered. And so we keep reading in the story and we're, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast track you through the entire Old Testament. From that day forward, they would make animal sacrifices in order to commune with God because in order to have relationship or communion with him, a sacrifice has to be made. So they would slaughter animals, but this sacrifice would only be temporary. And so God didn't design us to live that way. Our original design was to be connected with him. So he promises that one day a Messiah would come who would make a permanent sacrifice so that anyone who believes in him, in Jesus, would not have to live separated from God but could be reunited. And so we go through the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we see 322 messianic prophecies that would declare and tell about how Jesus would come. It would talk about where he would be born. It would talk about what he would do when he was younger. It would even go into detail about how much money would be in exchange for his betrayal. 322 messianic prophecies. And I know some people have this whole uh, idea that it's hard to believe in a God you can't see, but there are no historians who disagree that there was a guy named Jesus who was born in Nazareth. Even agnostic philosophers would say that he indeed died. The question is, did he get up? And the answer is yes. But to kind of unpack those 322, anybody a math person in here? Come on, there's prayer during the fourth song. I am not, I'm not a math person. Come on, I earned every C and D I ever got in school. But I was doing some reading on those 322 prophecies. That what is the statistical probability that all of those things would come to pass in a singular individual's lifetime? And the statistical probability was 100, and then there was this little, like, uh, up arrow looking thing, and then it was 840. That's how you know I'm not a math person, right? It's a lot of zeros. Why does that matter? Well, here's what I learned. What the probability of that would be for all of those things coming true would be like you and I laying quarters over the entire state of Texas. And we would flip one of those quarters over and the probability would be you finding that singular quarter. The probability of Jesus is not just that he's fully God and he's some historical figure. We have to understand he is fully God because all of those prophecies came true. So we keep reading in the text and Jesus, one of those prophecies would be that he's born of a woman and he would be born in Bethlehem and as Jesus would go about his life, he would continue to live sinlessly. He would live in such a way that he would face everything that you and I would face and yet he would overcome them time and time again. And then one of his closest friends would betray him. And when his friend betrayed him, Jesus would then be led to go on trial for crimes he didn't commit. He did nothing wrong. The people of the day had been waiting for a Messiah the entire time. They just didn't like how God showed up. Sometimes that's the struggle. It's not that God didn't answer your prayer. You just didn't like the package it came in. So he continues to go about his life and he's leading there. He's standing on trial for crimes he didn't commit. And another one of his closest friends would deny him in front of so many people. Again, fulfilling prophecy. And then Jesus, 
would be found guilty. Guilty of what? He did nothing wrong. In fact, when he would stand before Pilate, they would indeed conclude that Jesus had done nothing wrong. That trial that Jesus stands on is the trial that you and I deserve. But then we get to the text where Jesus is about to die. And the reason he's about to die is because he's been found guilty. But Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 32, gives us a story which says this. Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him, him being Jesus. Three guys heading to die and be crucified. When they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. The crowd watched and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he really is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine and they called out to him saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And a sign was fastened above him with these words, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, so you're the Messiah, are you? Well, prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God, even when you've been sentenced to death? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you today, that you will be with me in paradise. I wanted to unpack this passage of text for you and I today because I believe that if we can understand this passage of scripture, we will fully understand the beauty of salvation. Yeah. See, when we look at the text, we see that there are two criminals who are going to be crucified with Jesus. Other passages of text, other gospels include that these aren't just any criminals, these are thieves. And the reason why that matters is because just a couple of chapters earlier, there was this celebration right before Passover. And what they would do is they would allow the people to essentially vote on what criminal should be set free. And so Jesus is one of the options, but then there's this other guy named Barabbas. And Barabbas was a thug. He was a notorious criminal. He would go into villages and he would kill people and he would murder and he would steal from them and he would get into trouble and then he would go back and he would do the exact same thing over and over and over again. And so the options on the table are Barabbas, thief, murderer, renowned criminal, or Jesus. The guy who fed 5,000 people, 20,000 people, the guy who healed the sick and healed the blind, the guy who was perfect and spotless and sinless, those are your two options. And the people chanted, Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. And what a beautiful day as Barabbas would be sitting in his jail cell thinking there's no way that he's going to get out. Yeah. But they come and they say they took Jesus instead. It's important for you and I to understand that the thieves on the cross were most likely two of 
Barabbas' companions who would do all of these things wrong. They would steal and they would destroy and they would be criminals over and over. But now they're going to face the ultimate death, a death of crucifixion, where you don't escape from it. You have to endure it. It was one of the most heinous of the ways to die that we find back then. And these criminals who would be on the cross, one would say, well, really, Jesus, if you're all powerful, you should just get us out of this situation. But the other looks at Jesus and he says that we deserve to die, but you don't. Hey, Jesus, when you get to heaven, when you get to paradise, will you remember me? And Jesus says, I assure you that you will be with me in paradise. The reason why this is such a ridiculously crazy story that we find in the Gospels is because this man has no time to go to church. He has no time to attend a Bible study. He has no time to serve the poor, to start tithing or to start giving. And somehow he's going to make it into heaven. When he's a criminal and everyone would say he deserves to die for his crimes, there's no way he should make it. Jesus says he made it. Could you imagine what it would be like to be in heaven and see this guy start to walk up? One of the people would be in the room and they'd be standing there and they'd see this guy and they'd elbow and it's like, hey, isn't that the guy that stole from you a couple years back? I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to go get my watch back, you know, like. And they, they, others would look and say, that, that thief, he's, the, he's the reason why you ended up here. Like he's, right. he's the one that killed you. What, what, what's he doing walking up? And I would imagine that there would be some kind of conversation as they're standing in line waiting to get into heaven. And people who don't know this guy's past at all would say something like, well, hey, what church were you a part of? He'd say, I, I never really went to church. How'd you get here? Hey, well, what, what, then did you at least like, did you serve the poor? Did you, did you, did you tithe? Did you like get involved in a Bible study? No, I, I, I didn't do any of that. And how in the world did you make it? And the only thing he has the ability to say is that there was a man on the middle cross who said he could come. The only thing that he could say was that it wasn't about works or about efforts or about deeds, but simply that he had a conversation with Jesus and Jesus allowed him to experience eternal life. Friends, this is what salvation is all about. And I want to unpack, I'm going to give you three truths today from this passage of text that I think will really help us understand what it means to be saved because it's not about church attendance. It's not about giving. It's not about serving. It's all about Jesus. And I'm not saying that you're not going to do any of that other stuff. I think you should come to church. It's called job security for me, right? <laughs> I, I think you should be plugged into a church. I think you should give. I think you should serve. But if you're banking on those things to save you, you will miss out on the beauty of this text, which is this man didn't have time for any of that. And yet he was still saved. Luke chapter 23, verse 39 says this, that one of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed and said, so you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself. Here's the first thing I've got for you is that proximity and knowledge of Jesus can't save us. 
When we look at the text, we see two men who are hanging on the cross. That's about as close of a shared experience as you can have. These two men are going through the same death that Jesus would die. If proximity and shared experience was enough, then both of these criminals would experience eternal life through Jesus, yet we find that only one does. Proximity does not save us. In addition to that, knowledge doesn't even save us. When we look at the text, we see that he says in verse 39, so you're the Messiah. And I kind of read that as a mocking thing. Oh, so you're the Messiah. You know, like this was the best God could do. You know, like that's kind of the way I read it. But that might not be the heart posture of this individual. He might be saying, so, so you're the Messiah. So, so then do something about it. You should get us off of this cross. And while you save yourself, you know what? Hook us up as well. Like, come on. But it shows me that just knowledge can't save us either. And the reason why that's important is because we live in the Bible Belt. We're in the South where I think a lot of times people have this idea that if you just come to church enough, if you just learn about God enough, if you just read your Bible enough, then you can be saved. But friend, that is not what salvation is about. It's not about you and I just learning more things. It's about having a personal relationship with Jesus. I think about it like this when uh, I meet people from time to time, Tori and I'll be at a restaurant and uh, sometimes people will go, oh, I don't want to bother you. Then don't walk up to the table, right? Come, <laughs> come on now. No, I'm just kidding. But we'll be at a restaurant and they'll come and they'll say, hey, how are you doing? And they'll leave and I'll look at my wife and go, who is that? And you find out she doesn't know either, right? And so we, but we find out that these people, they follow us on social media and because they follow us on social media, they feel like they know us. So they kind of look at our timeline and they would look at mine and they'd say, that man likes to fish a lot. And he loves the mountains. He loves the fly fish. His wife is named Tori. They've got two dogs. One's a pit bull mixed with a weenie dog. And you'd say, well, how does that work? And it's not this message, right? <laughs> I wasn't there. I don't know. <laughs> they know a lot about us but they don't know us. Right. See, it's one thing to know about somebody. It's another thing to know them. And social media does this with us all the time where we've got these friends or we've got these relationships where we know a lot about people because we are reading external information, but we don't know anything about their heart. And that's where most of us in the South end up when it comes to a relationship with Jesus. We've been scrolling through his timeline. We've been reading scripture. We know a lot about him. We know about all the things he's done. We know about the miracles. We colored those pictures in Sunday school. But if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, then you are not saved. Proximity and knowledge of Jesus can't save us. So this man is kind of unpacking these things and then the other criminal who gets saved begins to really let you and I in on what and how we are saved. Luke chapter 23, verse 40 and 41 says this, but the other criminal protested, don't you fear God even when you've been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. 
If you're looking for a verse that will help you understand salvation, it is Luke chapter 23, verse 41. We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man has done nothing wrong. Friend, this is what salvation is all about. So the second thing for you today is that we must confess that we are sinful and he is sinless. Jesus did nothing wrong. And that matters because if he is sinful at all, if he's wronged at any point, then Jesus will not be a permanent sacrifice for us to have communion and relationship with God. But he is sinless. He does not sin at all. The good news of Hebrews chapter something, I can't remember right now, probably 12, is that... We don't have a high priest who can't empathize with us in all things because in all things he was tested. He went through it. He went through the struggle. He went through betrayal. He went through denial. He went through all of those things so that we could get a picture and an example of what it would look like to be overcomers in every area of our life. He is sinless, but we have sinned against God. And, and what the temptation would be would be to look at the text and go, Yeah, but I'm not a thief. Like my crimes are not as bad as their crimes. But but here's the thing. God's standard is not a worldly standard. We would be tempted to look at someone's sin and we would go, well, let's categorize those worst to best. And then we'll say, hey, if you sin this much, then, then that's what it looks like to be simple. But God's standard is that there is a standard that he has, and from the moment we sin, the law is broken. Yeah. Scripture says this in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin, the cost of sin, is death. And this is what this man is declaring on the cross when he's beside Jesus. We deserve to die for our crimes, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. God doesn't just leave us on the cross deserving to die. He pays for our sins himself. And he chooses to hang on that cross. Could he have gotten off the cross? Yes, at any moment. But if he gets off the cross, then you and I will spend eternity separated from God. And that is not God's heart. So Jesus was obedient to the point of death. He chose to go through and suffer the death we deserved so that in him we could have the life that he deserved. This is the beauty of Jesus. And I know some of you don't struggle with this, but when I was younger, uh, I struggled with speeding, right? And uh, a couple people on our team just laughed because they're like, when you were younger, you know, like, (laughs) come on, because I still speed uh, sometimes, right? Got a great lawyer if you ever need it. Just kidding, not, not... Well, I'm not kidding, but so I've, I used to speed a lot. And I remember going to court uh, one of the many times. And so go to court and I stand before the judge and he says, you know, Mr. Newman, you broke the law. And, and we know that when we drive down the road, right, there is a speed limit sign. And the speed limit sign says 55. We know that it means 65. No, I'm just kidding. The speed limit is the law. So what the law states is that the speed is 55 miles an hour. In the event we are going 56, we have now broken the law. We can disagree with the law all we want, but at the end of the day, that is what the law states. God's law works the same way. You don't have to agree with it to break it. That's the good news. 
So we look at the law, and I'm looking at the judge, and we're having a conversation, Mr. Newman, you were breaking the law, you were speeding, and, and I had to agree because he's not wrong. I was doing just that. And because of that, there is a punishment that comes with breaking the law. That punishment for us, according to Romans chapter 6, verse 13, is death. But imagine for a moment that the judge looks at me and he says, Mr. Newman, even though you broke the law, there's someone who's willing to take all of your punishment. That's what Jesus does for us. It's not that he did something wrong. It's that he sees that we have broken the law and he sees that we've done wrong and he is taking our place for the punishment. That is the death that Jesus died. And when we choose to accept salvation, what we're doing is we are allowing the payment that's already been made to be accredited to our account. But what if I looked at the judge and said, you know what, judge, I'd really like to pay for that myself. That'd be ridiculous. No one has ever been joy-filled about paying court fees. Come on. Because if someone's willing to take your place, you accept their payment. And that's what Jesus does for us. We must confess that we are sinful and he is sinless. And in the last part of the text, we read in Luke chapter 23, verse 42. It says, then he said, Jesus... Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. I love that Jesus adds the phrase, I assure you. Because what we really need in life is confidence in the salvation that we have. And the reason why this man can have confidence is not because of the church attendance or the Bible studies or any of the works or the things that he did, the reason why he can have confidence is because he placed his belief in the fact that even though he is sinful, God is sinless and chose to die in his place. He can have confidence in that because if you and I are banking on being good enough or strong enough, then our salvation is only as good as our working ability. There's not good news in that. Because you know what I've learned? You can work as hard as you want, but you're going to have an off day. And if your salvation is based on church attendance, what happens when you don't go to church anymore? Are you not saved? No, salvation alone is based on the payment of Jesus. And that's what this man got to embrace that day. And that's what we get to embrace. Because we read the story and we see what salvation is all about, we understand that it's not about a laundry list of things to do or works to be done. It's about simply placing our belief and our hope in the fact that Jesus dying on the cross was enough. It was enough to cover our sin. It was enough to die in our place. He alone is enough, which brings me to the last thing, which is being known by Jesus is the only way we experience paradise. If you go back and you look at the, the Greek word and the original language for that word paradise, it's actually the same word that we find used for the Garden of Eden. 
And it's not a coincidence. God doesn't have those. It's intentional. Because paradise is being restored back to our original design. The design where you and I have complete connectivity and communion with God. And there's things that you can do to foster that connectivity, like attending church and like reading your Bible and all of those things, praying. But the way that connection begins is not through human effort, it's by divine intervention. It's by trusting in the payment of Jesus for your sins. And when we say being known by Jesus is the only way, I think it's important because most of us would read that and say, knowing Jesus is the only way to experience paradise. But that's not what scripture teaches us. In fact, there's a passage of scripture in Matthew where Jesus is having a conversation with the disciples and they're trying to figure out who's actually gonna make it to heaven. And Jesus says that there's gonna be people who came and prophesied and there's gonna be people who cast out demons and he's gonna look at them and he's gonna say, turn from me, I never knew you. Why? Because those people based it on their ability to work, not his payment for their sin. And so the way we're saved, if you're wondering like, okay, pastor, it's not about works, it's not about church attendance, it's not about doing all these things, it's not about anything other than Jesus. How in the world do I receive salvation? How do I accept what Jesus did for me on the cross? Ephesians chapter two, verse eight, says this, that God saved you by his grace when believed. If this was about works, the text would read, God saved you by his grace when you showed up to church for 10 weeks in a row. God saved you by his grace when you started tithing. God saved you by his grace when you started serving. That's not what salvation is. You are saved by grace when you believe. And when you believe in what? When you believe that the same Jesus who died over 2,000 years ago for criminals who deserve death is the same Jesus who died for you and he died for me. Because even though we didn't sin like them, we still had sin in our life. We still deserve death. We still deserve to die for the things that we've done. But by God's grace, he chose to send Jesus Christ to die in our place so that in him, we could have new life. You don't have to pay for your sins yourself. You don't have to live in the guilt and the shame of the things that have happened in your past. You don't have to live in bondage to the things that people have done to you or that you've done yourself. No, you can receive God's grace by simply believing. And the reason why that matters is because Paul Paul then writes, so that you can't take credit for it, because it's a gift from God. Do you know what gifts are? Gifts are received. And that's really the only, there's two options with gifts, right? to reject or to receive. Jesus has already paid the price for your sins. There's not a new work on the cross that has to be done. The question is, 
Will you reject or receive the gift today? Because the story we read, there's men on both sides of Jesus. And one man would end up rejecting the gift, but the other would confess with his mouth that he was sinful, but Jesus wasn't. And because of that, he was known by Jesus and got to experience paradise. And that's why I wanted to teach you this today. Because even though we live in the Bible Belt and we live in the South and we think that some people think if you vote a certain way, you're making it to heaven. Here's what we know. It's only through the payment of Jesus that we're saved. And what I would hate for you to do is spend your entire life in church and still miss Christ. So the question for you today is, have you placed your hope and trust in Jesus? That your salvation is not about what you can do or how much work can be accomplished, but your salvation is based alone on the fact that Jesus Christ died in your place. And if the answer is no, then the good news is there's about to be an opportunity for you to make that decision today. I don't care if you've been in church for 40 years. I'd rather have this conversation with you right now than for you to get to heaven and hear those words, turn from me, I didn't know you. So with every head bowed, every eye closed across the room for a moment, I believe that there's some people in here today who have been banking on something in addition to Jesus to be saved. Maybe you put your hope in being a good person or you put your hope in how much good you can do in the world or maybe you put your hope in the approval and affirmation of others. I don't know what it is, but here's what I do know, that it's only through Jesus that we experience salvation. And so with every head bowed, every eye closed, if you're here today and you say, Pastor, I feel this drawing or this longing to surrender my life to Christ, to accept that Jesus Christ alone was enough for the full payment of my sins. Would you just lift your hand and boldly declare that for a moment and say, that's me. Come on. Here's what we're gonna do, church. Nobody prays alone. We're all gonna pray together. Will you repeat this after me? Dear Jesus, today I give you my life. I place my hope and trust in you. Thank you for dying in my place so that I could have new life. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thank you so much for checking out today's message at Propel Church. We pray that God spoke to you powerfully. And if you made any kind of decision to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or recommit your life to Jesus, or maybe you just wanna share something that God spoke to you through today's message, do us a favor and send us an email to amen at propel.church. And if God is using this ministry to impact your life and you'd like to partner with us financially, you can do so over at propel.church slash give. We pray God's blessing and favor over your life and believe that the best days have yet to come.